0: Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-Op Shop, your one-stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gussis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion.
1: Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-Op Shop podcast. We are here today to talk about Planet Apocalypse from Peterson Games.
0: Yes, and then for our design discussion, we're going to talk about base box versus expansions, and where should we put the majority of our content?
1: Yeah, that's right, and how much should we pay for it, and how should it all be distributed? Definitely going to get into some fun stuff, kind of more publisher side than designer, like we usually do. Sure, but I
0: think there's definitely considerations. Obviously, publishers are going to come to us as designers with these things and kind of let us know their thoughts and what they want from us. So I think it's an interesting discussion to have as a designer, you know, because we've had a lot of experience with this.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, we've actually had these talks <laughs> with our Kickstarters and even games that didn't go to Kickstarter yet. And yes, it's it's uh, certainly an interesting thing to figure out. Sure.
0: But that's not for now. That's for the end of the show. So, Mike, you've been doing anything fun lately?
1: Still quarantined with my kids. We've been playing more video games than maybe they should. But I guess if I ever needed a chance to introduce them to, like, old Genesis and Super Nintendo games, now is the time. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, signing up for free trials of things, so I signed up for a free trial of PlayStation Now, which has, like, access for free to all these PlayStation 2 and 3 games and things. So I'm showing them the ones of those that are safe for them to watch. Yeah, and besides that, we're wrapping up the school year. I had to read. <laughs> my voice sounds tired. Uh, I had to read, I, well I volunteered to, I shouldn't say had to, I volunteered to read 440 I think something names for graduation, I read every single senior's name for a video we did for like an online graduation, so that was a an experience to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And then uh, playing a lot of board games, and actually we've been doing a lot more design work uh, than we had for a while, we've got one game we're pretty happy with, hoping to start pitching to people. And then we got uh, conceptual work going on another game. So we have kind of three games in the pipeline to an extent right now.
0: Yeah, you know, I've definitely missed that. Although it's funny, we were talking about it over on the Slack. They're doing like tabletop design or some kind of hashtag like that or, or what tabletop's done for me on Twitter recently. And if you look at the amount of money designers have made off of board games, It really does make you sad. And, you know, we look at ourselves and, you know, we've had definitely experiences like that ourselves. You're not you're not getting rich doing this. That's for sure.
1: Now, especially when a game like takes you three or four or five years to work on it. It uh, can be demoralizing if you're coming in like both you and I are, I don't think (laughs) kind of out here to quit our jobs. We're just doing this because we love the creative aspect. But yeah, if if that's how you're doing it, uh, yikes, that's got to be rough.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I can't imagine doing this to make a living, but there are some people out there that are doing it and uh, hope that they all do well and they succeed. If this is what your passion is, if this is what you want, I mean, that's what you're going to do it for. I do think there's more money on the publishing end of things than the design end, but you can certainly, if you're doing it as a hobby the way we are, you can certainly make enough money to keep your hobby going. And the nice part for us is like our hobby pays for itself. So yeah, we're not making bank, but we've banked enough money to pay for all our conventions. We've banked enough money to buy games if we want them without feeling guilty because all that money came from gaming as well. So
1: there's that side of things. Well, and that's a nice transition into thanking our Patreon patrons because (laughs) a lot of what Peter was just talking about, having uh, funds to go to conventions, to buy equipment, to buy games we want to cover. uh, That is thanks to you all. So we're going to thank three of them this week. We're thanking, uh, it's got some numbers in it, but I think it's pronounced Alistair, who is a co-op fan. Ben Parker, who is a co-op champion, our uh, highest tier. where you get to actually play with us on Tabletop Simulator once a month. And Michael Hampton, also a co-op fan. So thank you to the three of you. They were all uh, new patrons as of this current month. And thank you to all our patrons. Um, It's really been amazing. We've added some new uh, bonuses and reward tiers and things. And the outpouring of generosity, especially in trying times, has really been exceptional. So thank you all for what you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, do we want to get into Planet Apocalypse? Well, I I didn't ask you. What have you been doing? So I've gotten into some old favorites, and so it's been really fun. I've been playing KeyForge with Nicholas. Super excited to get that to the table. Still one of my favorite games of all time. You gave me Hoplomachus, and I played that with Nicholas and had a ton of fun with it. We've been playing Planet Apocalypse. We're super excited to get into Dead Zone, which is a uh, miniatures game from Mantic, and there's a solo mode in there too, so maybe after I get it all put together, maybe either I'll record a video or you can record one and put it on the YouTube channel, because I know we've had some requests for miniatures games in the past. So
1: Yeah, and I love all these uh, solo things coming out. Uh, I know we've talked about the fact that Arcadia Quest, Simon uh, has put out an official solo mode for that, that they're like kind of actively developing and tweaking. So whenever we can borrow uh, the Arcadia Quest copy we have with our friend Jerry, (laughs) with quarantine being what it is, uh, that would be pretty awesome to try that out too.
0: Yeah, it's going to be hard because this is a birthday weekend for me, so I don't know if we're going to get too much getting together. Well, this past Friday, I guess, was my wife's birthday. Saturday was my birthday, and then Monday after this releases is my daughter's birthday. And my mom's birthday was the previous Monday. So yeah, a lot of birthdays this week.
1: Yeah, that, that, that sounds like you'll be a little busy. But <laughs> let's get busy talking about Planet Apocalypse from Peterson Games. All right. So I always do the story. Did you read the backstory for this? No, I, I figured the demons had ripped a like, you know, tear in the fabric of space time itself and were invading our dimension. But is it anything more than that?
0: It is. I mean, it's not much more than that, don't get me wrong, but I kind of like the backstory to it. So, hell has invaded Earth, that's the big theme of it, but Earth knows that this is coming. In fact, Stonehenge and other places, you know, these were all gates that hell has tried to come into our planet before, and so all of society has created these masters that, like, are imbued with magic all the way down to the core of their bones, and they're this, like, army that is designed to fight off the demons from hell. Well, as soon as the gate opens up, demons were prepared for him this time they rip apart the entire army. So we're not those people and I, that seems to be a common theme. You're you're not the the most trained person, you know, that that comes in more and more games. But the cool story here is That you are somehow connected to one of these great warriors. So somebody got a kidney transplant from one. Somebody was like blood brothers with one since they were younger. So there was some kind of connection between these warriors that are now taking up the mantle and the warriors who were all slain when, you know, hell invaded Earth. So... I thought it was a neat spin on things, and, uh, you know, they always have to justify why you're not this great warrior at the beginning, why you have to train up, and I think this is a pretty good explanation for it.
1: Yeah, that's way cooler than I thought it would be. (laughs) I I like that idea a lot. Yeah, no, when I read it, I mean, it's
0: literally, you know, half a page of text, but it was really cool text. I was like, wow, that was pretty neat. I wish I knew I was doing that when I was playing the game. I just read it before tonight so I could talk about the theme.
1: Well, and Sandy Peterson is clearly an old hand at a theme in his games and design, so that's not too surprising, I suppose. Sure. All right. Well, why don't you get into the mechanics for this one? Yeah, so I'll keep it uh, brief and basic. In a way, this is kind of like a uh, hero-based, like taking actions and upgrading your characters to fight a boss game mixed with a bit of a tower defense game. you have these uh, big boards, but even though they're huge, they actually don't have that many spaces. I think uh, in the core game that we have, the board only has eight spaces total from, like, you to the big boss. Six. Oh, is it six? Well, six between, but there's eight spaces total on the board, right? Or is it only six spaces No, 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 it's six. There's literally six spaces on the board. Oh, my God. That's even less than I thought. There you go. So yeah, it's only six spaces, and uh, basically the idea is you start each turn with this team phase where you can upgrade your characters, often using the shared pool of courage tokens, so you'll have like some personal courage and some share that you spend for a lot of things. You can try to recruit soldiers to help you out if you're back at the like home section of the board, and you can perform first aid on yourself or other heroes in your space. But then you kind of get into a more like normal sort of action turn thing. You can, in whatever order you like, move your character up to two spaces, ignoring any demons on your space as you're moving. You can fight demons in your space and each character will generally start with like one die, a D4, a D6, maybe a D8. And you'll upgrade to get more dice and higher value dice. And finally, if you have troops with you, you can drop them off. This is where kind of the tower defense feel comes in You can drop them off as ambush units on your space and then you get into the enemy phase and all the like demons will advance. They'll usually be spawn tokens to start and then when they flip you roll some dice and the number of dice you roll increase looking for pairs for which demons you spawn. If you have troops there they'll get free shots at them and the demons basically ignore them. And the key idea is you're trying to kill the demons, kind of stem the tide as they come in ever increasing numbers. And if they get past you and go past your home hex, this doom track raises up and that's your main loss condition. And also every once in a while, the boss will move up and spawn like these really, really tough demons but eventually you got to go to the boss, basically go into hell itself and have this big like round after round after round boss battle. And the game's tough enough that generally speaking you're going to have to do that 2, 3, even 4 times, sometimes with characters dying and you getting new characters that you have to upgrade again before you can finally finish off the boss. So that's the basics of the game. There's a lot of other stuff, but it's dice-based combat with different polyhedral dice, uh, putting troops down to ambush units. You can also use troops with you to kind of tank damage. He was trying to beat the boss before they uh, make Doom raise too high.
0: Well, thanks for that, Mike. And now we're going to get into our top five list. If this is your first time, welcome. We haven't thanked people, I don't think, a lot lately, so thank you for joining us if you're new. What we do here is we talk about our top five things we think about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing we think, moving all the way up to our number one, which was the most important thing we think about the game. So I'll start us off today. My number five is this is a dice fest. What I mean by that is if you're not into luck, this might not be the game for you. There is a lot of dice rolling in the game. Now, for those of you who like dice rolling like we do and you've been played a lot of games with dice rolling. What you realize is the more dice you roll throughout the course of a game, the more the luck tends to balance out. And I I found that that is true in this game as well, but there is, unless your character has some kind of a mitigating power, there really isn't any dice mitigation either. So you're rolling a dice, and you're kind of getting what you're getting. Um, now that seems like there's would be a lot of luck in the game, and I do think there is some degree of that, but no more than most other co-ops, because there are so many other factors to the game, but, I mean, when you spawn enemies you're rolling dice, and you kind of get what you get. When you're attacking them, you're rolling dice, and you get what you get, and there certainly be times where you roll really well, and take out a bunch of them and there'll be certainly times where you're fighting that boss and you just need one more hit on him, and you don't get it and so then he slaughters your entire team so you know there are certainly times where the dice come into it and you just kind of have to know that about yourself whether that's going to bother you or not but it's certainly a big part of the game not something that took away from me personally but i mean it's a lot of dice rolling
1: yeah, you know, it's funny. I've For several games I've reviewed recently, I've kind of talked about swinginess and randomness in the game. But I'm with you. There's just so much dice rolling in this that I never generally felt that like any one attack or any one roll was the be-all, end-all or like totally ruined my chances. So it didn't make my list. But no, I think it's a good call to just make people aware of.
0: Well, yeah, I think there are certain people that just don't want dice in their games. And if you're that kind of person this game, I mean, you could turn off the review right now. <laughs>
1: I don't wanna... Oh, my God. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Ken Chonger on our uh, Slack. He would never play this.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. There's some people you just talk dice and they're like, forget it. I'm not going to play it. I personally think that there could be just as much luck in cards and everything else. So it doesn't bother me. But yeah, for some people, it's going to be a no starter.
1: Now, I will say in most rounds of combat, you'll have like these like weenie demons kind of with the bigger demons and you can freely assign the dice you roll to the types of enemies you can kill. So it's rare for your attack dice to be wasted. You just might not get them as high as you hoped you would to actually like take out the really dangerous people. Oh, absolutely. All right. So my number five is focused on the enemies and that's uh, the enemy activation. I think enemy turns go super simple. Again, you just basically walk them all forward one. Uh, They only attack when you're on their space, so like combat with enemies actually isn't that frequent. Like they never attack the enemies. And yeah, I just think like it's really a simple system. The other part of enemy activation is you advance this to spare track based on the number of players, and all you care about is when it reaches back around to its starting space. And that triggers the Lord track advancing. So you kind of have, like, two tracks. I think, Peter, you described it as a minute hand and an hour hand, which I thought was really apt. Yep. And, like, those trigger when cool things happen and when terrible things happen. Like, bad stuff happens, but they also give you free courage to upgrade yourselves more. So you don't totally hate that it's happening. I like that element of it. But, yeah, so enemy turns are ultra quick. They get out of the way quickly. This is not a game where, like, you're running the enemy for hours and hours. And the fact that they give you, like, some bonuses when the worst stuff happened, I really appreciated. it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And the worst stuff happening is you're adding another dice. So the way enemies spawn is that you roll these dice and three sides of them are level one enemies, two sides of them are level two enemies, and one side of them is a level three enemy. So anytime you roll a pair in those dice, then you spawn that type of an enemy and then you also spawn these little vermin along with them.
1: Which is a nice, I mean, that is a mitigating factor. The fact that you don't just need one level three guy to kill you, you know, one of those six-sided oh, sure. dice, like six faces, you need a pair of them, so it's really pretty rare. It's not like you're getting them every single turn, generally. Although there's certainly turns where I've spawned two at a time. Yeah, me too, me too.
0: <laughs> so at the beginning of the game, you're only rolling four of these dice, but as, it, as the rounds go on... You're adding, so every time that minute hand goes around and you're advancing the hour hand is the way I think of it, you're going to add one more dice to this pool, but then you're also getting courage, as Mike said, to help you upgrade yourself, which at the beginning of the game is desperately needed because, I mean, when you're attacking with 1d4 as your only attack, you're not really doing a lot yourself. You're really counting on recruiting those troops and hoping that they're helping you. And that is my number four, actually, is the troop cards. So the troop cards in this game do some really interesting things. The way you get them is if you're on the starting location, during that like beginning phase, everybody can roll a d4 to see how many points they get toward buying troops. And typically, you're going to have a one-cost troop up to a five-cost troop. And the nice part is you can use that courage that you're also using to level yourself up to buy troops as well. And the troops do th- two or three different things, really, depending on the troop itself. The first thing they do is they can soak up damage for you. So you grab them, you buy them, and you add them to your player board to start with. And when they're on their player board, all they can, well, not all, one of the two things they can do for you is soak up damage. So if you take three damage, you could discard three life worth of troops at that point. The other thing you can do is during the main phase, you can drop them off either at your starting location or if you move somewhere else, you're taking them with you and you could drop them at that location and they become more and more powerful. The more troops you have there. So when they're one troop, you might only roll one D six when you get, four troops there, you might roll 3d6, or it might start as a d8 and go to a d10, and then 3d8, and then 3d10. So it becomes more and more powerful the more troops of the same type you get at a location. So that's the second thing they do for you. And then the third thing they do is some troops even have special text on them. You can discard them from on your character sheet to gain a d10 in combat, for example. So there are many things you can do, and even though it, there It isn't a big card play game. These troops, they give you so many options for things you can do in combat that I, I just like their versatility. So that is my number four is the troop cards and the, the different things they do with them.
1: Yeah, and it's funny. This is, uh, this is another game that we've never played together. Clearly, with uh, times being what they are, that's going to be the case a lot. But my number four was also the troops. So I'll echo everything you said. I like all the aspects you talked about. Really, my only big negative with them, and this is going to come up a few times in the review, is that in the core game, you just have the five types, and you're always going to use those same five types. And in terms of their ambush capability, you only have the one board. I mean, it can be flipped to the other side, or not really flipped, but it can be placed in a different orientation for the second scenario in the game, but it's still basically the same thing. And what I found is I was winning the game consistently by putting the troops out the exact same way every time. Like, they have very clear <laughs> uh, priorities for me in terms of which ones can defend well and which ones can't. So every game I would just rush toward doing the same strategy and it would work every time. Sure. So that's not a that's not a complaint about the design itself because some maps don't have just one avenue of enemies coming. They have two or three. So you can't just have, like, one line of defense. And uh, if you buy expansions, you get new types of troops that you can mix and match and stuff. So I think with expansions, this would not be a negative at all. But the only like negative I have with the troops, because I like everything you said, is that, at least with the core game, for me, they got really stale and became obvious how to use them every time. Sure. And not
0: only that, not only are there only five troops, you know, one at each cost in the base game, but really you have two sets of two as well, because the one cost troops and the three cost troops are very similar, except for the amount of life they can soak up. And the two cost troops and the four cost troops are very similar as well, as far as the dice they put out, just the four cost troops have a special ability with them and can soak up more damage as well. So yes, even though there is these four different types of troops, they're actually more similar than you would think they would be.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that'll get into our design discussion later as well. But, Peter, what's your number three? All right, so my number three is the
0: combat itself. Basically, at the beginning of the game, Mike's right, you have either a D4 or a D6 to start with, but you'll be upgrading throughout, so maybe, you know, they'll usually be. I'm going to talk about the upgrading later, but. There'll usually be a spot where maybe you get another D4 or D6 or whatever, and maybe you buy some cards or there might be spots on your board that let you upgrade those. So a D6 will go to a D8 or a D8 will go to a D10, etc. So you're going to roll the dice, basically, that you have in your pool. Now, there is a way to help each other. And that is with assists. So if you're in the same space, you can spend your resource, which is that courage that we've talked about. So every time you kill a demon, you get a courage. So you can spend a courage to help somebody in your space to upgrade one of their dice. So again, D4, 6, 8, 10, 12. You can upgrade one of their dice by assisting, but you have to spend part of that resource. So that's the cost-benefit analysis you have to make. And then on the other side, if you don't kill everything then they're going to attack you back during the enemy phase. So I just thought the combat itself was very interesting. So when you don't kill them, like I said, if there are enemies on your space, and typically you'll know unless you just totally whiff on your combat, you know if you're going into a space you're going to get attacked. But the way it works when they attack back is they're going to roll dice just like you do. And they're rolling typically D6s or D10s, and you have to beat this armor stat. So that's the other interesting part about combat is everybody has these armor stats. The enemies will have an armor stat that might be, so for the weakest guys, the armor stats one, which means if you get a two or above, you hit them for the the first level guys, their armor stats three. So if you hit four or above, you hit them. And again, you're rolling these different types of dice. Then the next level guys are six. So even if you're rolling a D4 or D6, you have zero chance of killing these guys, but anything above that. So you have to roll seven or above to hit them. The level three guys, you're like, oh my gosh, what are you gonna go up to? 10? No, they don't. This is the interesting thing. They have it so that you need it's four plus four, which means you have to have two different dice, both of which exceed four. And they play with that with the characters as well. Typically, you're starting with two or three armor, but there are ways to get more armor for yourself as well. So you could get up to three, four, five, six. And then the enemies have to hit higher than that number when they're attacking you as well. So I just thought it was neat how the combat worked. It's a very simple thing to do. You roll as many dice as it tells you to. I got four enemies. Then they all roll two dice. Then roll eight D10s. And it's easy as that. And I take however many are above my armor. I take that much damage. And I either soak it up myself by taking wounds or I discard troops at my location either on my card or at my location itself to soak up those wounds so combat's very simple but I think it's very good
1: yeah once again it is funny uh, I guess we just design and hang out to with each other too much because my <laughs> number three is partially the combat although I kind of broadened it out to be like the whole player turn and taking your actions as well because I think with as much randomness as this game has there are some really nice tactical decisions to be had here One of the big things is, like I said, uh, enemies don't affect your movements. You don't have to fight, like, the kill stack right in front of you. You can run past them to the weaker group of enemies uh, one space further away. And a nice thing kind of for the mitigation of the random spawning and the random combat. Now, this doesn't apply if you're playing on Scenario 2, the Doomgate one, where the enemies, in that one, if enemies get past you, they just go back around to the other side. So they're going to keep on coming and coming and coming. But in the usual scenario, if an enemy gets past you, yes, they increase doom and make uh, you closer to losing the game. But then they're gone, so it's like you killed them for free. So I'd often let, like, level 3 enemies just pass me by and be like, well, they're too hard to take out anyway. And it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But yeah, like Peter said, uh, the combat is fun in and of itself. But the uh, the combo of, like, moving around and the desperation of combat, like when I would run back trying, you know, in a last-ditch effort to take out this one demon before they got away... And not even that, but uh, the the tenseness of going into battle with the Demon Lord, you know, this big boss, and just having this drag-out fight. And he can do so much damage, and he spawns extra minions on him, too, when you go in there, like, to block for him, basically, and hit you more. And just, like, seeing your guys be picked off one by one and deciding whether you want to run away, usually you go in with a lot of troops and seeing your meat shields just get taken out and be like, oh, my God. It's a lot of fun, like Peter said. I mean, if you don't like dice, you aren't going to like it. But I found it consistently entertaining. Uh, Whereas, you know, I felt like I had solved the troops to an extent. The actual tactics turn to turn were still interesting every time I played.
0: Yeah. And the, the other interesting thing is you can move, you can drop off troops, and you can fight. That's literally all you do on your turn. But the order you do it in matters, too, because you could fight and then move away, too, if you don't kill that last demon. So I think that's part of the reason the luck didn't matter as much. If I got unlucky and didn't kill something, a lot of times I would move to, like, maybe I just move one space back where, you know, those troops would be coming toward me again. And so I'd have another chance next turn at them. So there was definitely a lot of tactics. Considering how simple the actions in the game were, there seemed like there was a lot of choices to me.
1: Yeah, and again, I imagine with expansions and different maps, it would only expand out from there. Well, I mean, that's really going to tie into our design discussion a lot, too. Sure. All right, so
0: my number two, and this might be your number one, I feel like it might be, is this game is overproduced. (laughs) I mean, when I say it's overproduced, I mean, it's ridiculous. I actually watched your video and I'm like, oh, that's not that bad. I don't know what people are talking about. Like, I don't know why the cost of the game is as high as it is, like, or, or whatever. There's lots of miniatures, yes, and lots of stuff. But, you know, it doesn't seem that overproduced. When you get the game, here's the thing I didn't realize. I had scaled the game in my mind to a normal size. So when I see your video... It didn't make any sense to me that it was any different than any other board game. The problem is everything is, like, three times bigger than you would imagine it <laughs> in your brain. It is, like, holy <laughs> big. Like, I couldn't believe how big everything was. I was like, holy moly. Like, the board would bear. I have a four-foot by eight-foot table. Now, granted, some of that space is taken up by games sitting at the end of my table that I want to play. So I probably have a four-foot by six-foot table. I could barely fit it. I don't think I could fit the board in the normal, like, level one starting configuration on my table. That's how big this board is. Like, it was ridiculous. So what I always did is I did the second configuration, which instead of looking like an S is more of a circular configuration. Now, I played with it as if it was a level one board. So I didn't play that I could wrap around.
1: That's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that.
0: Yeah, so I played with it as that circular configuration. I just played with the rules that they didn't wrap around. I mean, it's really actually pretty simple to do. But I I just couldn't figure out a way to fit the board on my table along with... I mean, so when you fight the boss, there's a literal board that is not really, but almost a board game size board that you're supposed to do this fight with the boss on. And it's like... I never did that. Uh, well when I played with my son, he made me like pull out that board. (laughs) So I did. But like and I put the miniatures on it. Like technically you can do that, but you don't really need to. Like you could also do it in the gigantic space that they provide for you to fight (laughs) in any way. So yeah, the scale of this thing is just amazing. And that's one of the negatives of the game is the cost. And I'm sure we'll get into this in our final thoughts. But if they had made this a normal scale I feel like the cost would have been a lot more palpable. So I think that's the thing. Now, these are the same people that did Cthulhu Wars. So if you've seen Cthulhu Wars, you know. There's giant miniatures that don't need to be that big. There's a lot of overproduction. But there's, I mean, the other side of the coin of overproduction is sometimes it's a good thing. Right? Sometimes people want that. Certainly, if people walk by your table and see you playing this, they're going to be like, oh, my gosh, what is that? There is a coolness factor to overproduction as well. So, I mean, if you don't mind the price tag, it could be a pro for you that these things are overproduced as long as you have a table not only big enough to hold it but strong enough. I mean, I don't know. If I feel like I left this on my table for long enough, my table might collapse. (laughs) You know, as long as you have those things, then you're fine with this production. So for me, overproduction is my number two. It's both a pro and a con, although I think for most people it'll be more of a con than a pro.
1: Yeah, it's weird, man, how similar our list is, because that's coming up for me in a minute, like you guessed. And my number two is uh, the gift system and the upgrading, which I'm sure is going to be your number one. Maybe. I think this is awesome. Like, I want to see five more games do this right now. So we mentioned you have this courage pool. You earn one courage every time you defeat a monster. You get free courage kind of for all the characters to share and use uh, every time the despair track advances. And one of the main things you use them for are these gifts. So you've got this offer of gift cards available, like kind of mini cards, and most of them will have zero cost on them. They just have like a little bonus like, hey, up one of your dice by one value or hey, do X or Y. But on your player board, you have a unique track for your character of abilities, kind of like a little skill tree you're walking down. And uh, on that track will be two abilities that are completely unique to your character, as well as more basic abilities, but still unique to your character. Like, you know, I might get a third die and you never do. But the cool thing is you combine them. When I want to upgrade my character, I pick one of the cards from the offer and I cover up one of the cards uh, that is available to me on my character sheet and I gain two upgrades. I gain whatever the card gives me, and I gain whatever my character sheet gave me. So uh, how I described it to Peter when I was like telling him about the game, it's kind of like the best of both worlds in a way. Because you have the randomness and the excitement and the variety of a fully open upgrading system where you get new cards every game, especially, again, if you expand it. But you also have the consistency and the differentiation of a unique character with their own upgrades and tracks, which, you know, usually you get one or the other with games. Here you get both, and it's so clever. I just think it's so great. I love leveling in games, feeling like a hero and kind of crafting my hero, and this game does it better than just about anyone I can think of, especially for such a a streamlined simple system with the rest of the game. Well, you guessed it. That's my number one. The leveling system is amazing. I mean, as much as the
0: overproduction is what people are going to notice when they see the game, the leveling system for your characters is, like you said, I think it might be the best I've ever seen in any dungeon crawler. I mean, you said it all. The consistency of having your character differentiated because you get certain upgrades, but yet you have this gift stash of things that you're buying from. And not only that, but there are a couple other things that Mike didn't mention. There's upgrades on your character sheet. One of which you start with at the beginning of the game, which differentiates your character. You also start with a weakness at the beginning of the game that differentiates your character. So only your character will have that weakness and only your character will have that strength. And there are two more that you'll unlock through this card placement system. And it's not willy-nilly. You can't place the cards where you want. There's going to be a path. Usually there's two starting spots, but I've certainly seen it where there's only one where you have to place your first card. It tells you the cost of that upgrade, right? It might cost five courage to get that upgrade. And then I buy any card from the gifts and put it on that upgrade. And it didn't stop there. As you said, the cards you're buying from the gifts have different power levels too, and they have different costs associated with them. For example, one of them just makes the cost six cheaper and has no special ability associated with it. So you just get whatever level upgrade you want for six less. There are some that cost two or even four, and I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen them all. They could cost much more, because they know the cards better than some of the other cards that you could buy from the gifts. And so you buy it for two plus whatever the cost on your board for the upgrade was. It's genius. You get two things at once. You know who I thought of with this was Jamie Stegmire. I don't know if you, that reminded you of Scythe at all, where you're upgrading and you get double bonuses at the same time. Jamie would be so proud. And I know he's a huge fan of the show, so I'm sure he's listening to this episode. Shout out to you, Jamie. You're the one who pioneered this. And it's so good here. Well,
1: and also, uh, j- just kind of in the Stone Meyer, uh catalog, I just did my uh, Wingspan videos recently. and Wingspan, you get often the brown powers on your track, and also you unlock, like, the new automatic resource generation things of putting more birds down. So, no, yeah, I-, I-, I love that kind of stuff.
0: Actually, you're right. Wingspan does it, too, because also, depending on how many birds you get out, that increases the power of that whole track as well. So, no, Jamie is a genius. He he was definitely a pioneer for this. But this, in a dungeon crawl, I hadn't seen it before. And it does it so well here that it helps differentiate your character. Every character feels different. But they're also never going to level up the same because you're never going to have the same level ups in the gift offer to buy from every game. So, oh, it is so good. That's the thing that I think makes this game stand out for me is
1: that leveling system and and just the characters themselves just feel different. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's my favorite thing too because we're ending on a negative note for me. And I do want to say uh, Elizabeth Hargrave, good job on Wingspan's design as well. We're not just going <laughs> to compliment Jamie on that idea.
0: Oh, of course. No, no, no. Yeah, Elizabeth did a great job with that design. I mean, you just reviewed it on the YouTube channel, so go check out the review and the playthrough on our YouTube channel if you want to see what the European expansion adds, and if you want to see Mike's thoughts on solo
1: play. Yeah, that's right. But back to Planet Apocalypse, Uh, yeah, my number one is very similar to Peter's number two, although I'm not going to focus on the overproduction because I don't think the price tag on this game is too ridiculous. I think it's $100 MSRP. I've seen it online for like 75 And I think for like the big miniatures you get and the great gameplay in a lot of parts, I think it's kind of potentially worth that. What bugs me, and I guess this is kind of a byproduct of the overproduction, there's so little content in here. And it's not just that there's so little content. It's that they shove it in your face how little content there is Because in what could be seen as a nice move, once you own everything, uh, the rule book talks about everything. And they show you they have like separate pages. not even like really separated. Like they don't make it obvious. Hey, this is from this expansion. This is from this expansion. They just have uh, all these pages with all the cool stuff you could have. Like, hey, you only have five troops by this expansion. Now you'll have ten types of troops. Uh, Oh, you only have uh, six heroes? By this expansion, you'll get three more. You'll get 30 more gift cards. Like, all the stuff that makes the game cool is uh, drastically increased. But here's the thing that destroys me for this one, and I'm not saying, like, this is going to go into my final thoughts a little bit, so I won't go on it too much, but you only get one boss, and you only get basically one board... Yes, you have two scenarios where you flip over the board and you make it into a circle and then the enemies come back, but it's basically the exact same board. Like, you don't see anything new. There's no new tricks with, like, placing your troops. So you have very finite replay value. Amazing replay value in how you build your characters. Super finite replay value in terms of the kind of the main things, the scenario and the boss that you are fighting. You have so little content here. And... I mean, here, I'll just get into my final thoughts. Is that okay, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah, so so here's the thing. I love this game's gameplay. Like, overall, yes, it's kind of random, but my only complaints with the game, if you go back to my troop one, my number four, that was kind of a mix for me, but it's only because I don't have enough troops and I don't have enough maps and then my number one is a complaint about the content. So if you strip away, if, if I just magically had every expansion for the game, there's four big expansions and they each like MSRP for $80 individually. If I had all four of those, this game would be friggin' phenomenal. Like I, I have no doubt in my mind about that. This would be like a top game for me. But here's the question. And I'll say it, you know, I say it in my videos every time I got the core game as a review copy. Cool. But I have to review it as though I didn't. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And if I paid eighty dollars for this? Uh, no, I mean I think it's one hundred or one
0: hundred twenty. I mean eighty is cheap for the base game. I, I don't know. No, no, no.
1: I, I've seen all like miniature marketing cool stuff for like seventy five or eighty. So I think eighty is about right if you you know aren't paying MSRP. But yeah, if I if I pay eighty or ninety or a hundred dollars for this. Uh, I feel like I need to immediately spend at least $60, $80 to get one expansion to up my options. But that's still only one or two new bosses, only one or two new maps. And then, I, I, you know, I feel like I have to buy all of them. And that's fine. It's great marketing, good business model. We're going to get into that with the design discussion. And I think if you went on the Kickstarter, you can get everything for cheaper. So that's cool. That's kind of a Kickstarter problem there. But, yeah, I just – I wish – and, and, and it's funny, Sandy Peterson actually like wrote this on Board Game Geek in reaction to my review. He said, what if I had made the game $20 more and included an extra boss and two extra maps, like doubled the content in the game, basically, in terms of like the big things? Would you have complained the game was too much? And at the time I said, I don't know, but I would say now, no, I would not complain. If this game was 120 MSRP and I got two or three bosses and four maps with like drastically different scenarios, I think that would be great. But as it is, this one is hard to recommend unless, like Peter said, you are not going to worry about the money. If you are ready to pay like $300 or $400 to own everything, this game is awesome. This might be like your favorite game of the year or the last few years, but you got to be ready to put up that money or you're going to be, I don't know how you feel, Peter, but I was like, I played it five times and I was like, yep, that is the entire game. Unless I pay more, I don't have any desire to play this again, generally. Uh, so, yeah, that's me. I'm really curious to hear you because we haven't really talked about this. You've been pretty mum on the issue.
0: Well, yeah, it's funny. When we first started the podcast, every time we would talk about a game, we would make sure not to talk to each other. And I think <laughs> over the years, we got less and less strict about that rule. And so some of our final thoughts aren't as much of a surprise. So I've been really trying to go back to that because I, I do like the surprise value of what what is that other person going to say during this review. So here are my thoughts. I totally disagree with you on your number one as far as the overproduction with the shoving it in your face in the rulebook. I love that this is one rulebook. I love that I can look and see what components I would get if I bought an expansion. I love that they show me in the back what the maps are and they tell me what the rules will be if I buy those maps. Because first of all, as a designer myself, I could just proxy them right? If you don't care, you can just make that map in all honesty. So you don't have to buy everything. But secondly, I just love knowing what I'm purchasing before I purchase it. So for me, the one rulebook is fantastic. I wish every game did this. Uh, I do wish they told you a little bit better. There's no like delineating line that says, hey, I mean, if you look closely enough or if you figure out like where you're supposed to look, it'll be like, hey, this is expansion one. This is what you get. This is expansion two. This is what you get. I love it because the other... Or you gave me a game and I can't even remember. Oh, Hoplomachus. You gave me Hoplomachus. And I'm like, what tokens go with what expansion? You had no idea. And unless it, there's a rule book for that expansion that tells you exactly what you get, there's no way to do it. And I always hate 50 rule books to look at. The other thing I'll say is... With everything in one rulebook here, there's no additional rules. Like, I'm not trying to pair together two or three rulebooks, and the nice part is, and I'm looking at the expansion content in there, because uh, this game is great, and so I'm thinking about what expansions I want to buy, and so I'm looking at it, and I can say, okay, this is exactly what comes in these expansions, and there's no additional rules. The one thing that I love about expansions is when they don't add, they add extra content, But don't add extra complexity. I love that in expansions. And that's what you'd get here. You get new enemy types. You get new troops. You get new bosses. And you get new level 4 boss or enemies, bosses, whatever you want to call them. They're like the mini bosses Mike was talking about that you'll spawn midway. You only get two in the base box. More of those would be super cool. Because then you don't know what's coming at you even halfway through the game. As well as new maps and scenarios that go along with those maps. But the thing that is cool is the only new component they add in these expansions are these location cards. And I was trying to figure out what's a location card do. Well, all it does is tell you which troops to use. Hey, use these ones from the base game. Use these ones from the expansion. So you can randomly shuffle those up and draw a new one for each time you play. So the one thing I'm going to disagree with you with also is... I don't know that you need all four expansions. I think you get one or two expansions and you'll be good. I do agree with you on the price. I mean, to get to where I would want this game to be, I think you need at least two expansions. So now you're talking 200 to 250 bucks. That's a lot. That's a lot. And not only that, but the box is huge because all, everything in it is huge. And so... I can't imagine even how big the expansion boxes are going to be, but you're getting a couple more level fours. You're getting two new bosses, I think, with each expansion. I actually think the expansion value might be better than the base game value. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, you know, I well, for, first of all, I think like I, I want to retract some of the things I said because everything you said about the rule book really makes sense. So never forget my negativity. <laughs> yes, no, and I do think. The big thing for the expansions, two bosses doubles the base game's content of bosses, and the maps look more drastically different. You'd agree with that, right? Oh, yeah. Like the base game, the two maps are the same, but you're really... So, really... Yeah, I guess you're right. Each of the expansions does have kind of better value than the base game. Now, you don't get, like, nearly as many gifts in the expansions as the base game, and you get fewer characters. So, like, the hero side of things is not as big of a jump with the uh, expansions. But, yeah, you're pretty much doubling... Or, you know, whatever it is, quadrupling, I don't know how the math works out, <laughs> your variety of plays between bosses and scenarios with each of those expansions. And they're like $60, I think, at discount online sites. So, yes, I mean, I hear you on all that. Well, actually, all right, so I'm
0: looking at it now. You get two new heroes, three new fourth circle, which, again, is the the upgraded minions. Yeah, and that's, again, more than the base game, which only had two of them. Yeah, and two new bosses. So you're doubling the
1: bosses... You know, one and a half times the number of fourth circle guys. And basically double the scenarios because the base game ones are so similar.
0: Yeah, you're getting two new scenarios, you're getting ten new gift cards, and you're getting new trooper cards, which is a huge upgrade over the basic. Now, you're not getting any new
1: minions. So the level, uh, the larva and the level one, two, three guys are never going to change. But I don't think I mind that, right? Like, that's going to keep the game more streamlined. In terms of like the turn-to-turn action. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't mind not getting
0: new ones of those guys. So the value you're getting, though, in the expansions is huge. I think if you get the base game, and this kind of going into our design discussion now, if you get the base game and love it, I would quickly buy an expansion or two. And that's where I am right now. I think this is a game that I would like to buy an expansion or two for. I mean, one of them is a dragon expansion where you can either be on the back of the dragon or inside. You go inside the dragon (laughs) and like the boss is sitting in his brain and you got to like get into the brain to kill the boss and – like the thematic integration is so cool. Some of the times you're in the middle and stuff's coming from the outside. Sometimes it's spawning in the middle and moving outward. So you have to like really take care of stuff. Not every boss do they spawn every turn the way they do in the base map. So I read through literally every single map and the way that works is really cool. They, they've
1: done a lot of diversity in the different maps outside of the two you get in the base game, of course. Yeah, gosh, I mean, I think the final scenario in the fourth expansion, you have, like, a boss at each level of hell, and you just keep on fighting bosses after bosses after bosses. (laughs)
0: Yeah. No, I mean, this game was clearly designed as a Kickstarter game where you're supposed to get everything. And I probably would buy them in the order they suggest. I mean, the dragon one's kind of cool, so I might skip level one expansion. Although you get to go to the moon and fight on the moon in level one expansion, so that seems really cool to me, too. So the only caveat I'm going to put here and now is I have only played it two player, and I'm not sure how the scaling would work. It seems like it would work well to me because there are some things that are going to be easier and some things that will be harder with more players. Like I don't think you'll be as leveled up with more players as you would with two players. So that's the caveat I'm going to put here. I. only because I've just had experience recently where I love Cthulhu Death May Die, and then Colin bought it and played it with five players, and he's like, what do you love about this game? And so the scaling wasn't necessarily as good there. I think they do a good job here, but I can't say because I haven't played it at higher player counts. But at two players, the game's great.
1: All right, so there you have it, folks. I think both of us highly recommend the design, and you just have to figure out uh, how much you want to spend. I I think... For both of us, probably the core game is not enough, right? You agree with that, Peter? Not enough for long term? If I bought the core game and that was all I was allowed to ever own, I would never recommend this game. Like, it's just not enough. Yeah, so I would say if you um, are ready to spend 150 to 180 based on how much of a discount you get on the core game and at least one expansion, if that doesn't sound like something to make you bulk, then check this game out because it has got great, great stuff going on.
0: Yep. No, we're on the same page. All right. So let's get into our design discussion. I've talked a lot this week. So let's have you start out with our design discussion, which is the base box versus expansion. So both you and I agree that there isn't enough in the base box of this game. So how do you decide as a designer? And I mean, I guess, again, it's more of a publisher question, but... What do you like? Do you like more in the base box and less in expansions? Do you
1: like less in the base box and then expand it if you like it? What are your thoughts on it? So there are certain types of games I like a lot. And you'll see this in my reviews. And those are like modular games or games that have like various things for you to investigate. So my favorite kinds of games in terms of value are the ones that give you a nice amount of stuff in the base game but not an overpowering amount. Probably the game that, and Peter, you might agree with this, the game that has like the best value in many ways of looking at it is Spirit Island. That has a bunch of different spirits that play very differently in the base game, a bunch of different factions you can go against, ton of powers, you're never going to see the same ones. So you've got great variety in the base game. I could just own the base game of that and be totally happy with it. Yeah, I see that. Now, if you go too far, and Peter and I have talked about this in the past, some people really love just the kitchen sink approach of Kickstarters. And that's kind of muddying the waters of what is the core game, because usually those do count as expansions. But personally, and I know you agree with this, Peter, if you have way too much content, I find it an impediment to me playing the game. And this is usually, again, coming from Kickstarter expansions that just ship with the base game. But if Spirit Island, for example, in the core game had, like, 30 spirits, and not just 30 spirits, but, like, I had to, like, separate out, like, all these different complex elements and things, that would make me want to play the game less. So there is kind of a, at least for me as a gamer, there is kind of a sweet spot to hit. Like, Planet Apocalypse clearly has too little, and a lot of Kickstarters if you add all the stuff together. Like, you know, uh, Street Masters Aftershock oh, that's too much stuff right now. Like, I haven't even played it because I just don't want <laughs> to get all those cards out and separate everything. Like, that's too much. I think there was a sweet spot you can hit. I would say, like, uh, Cthulhu Death May Die, since you mentioned it, similar theme to Planet Apocalypse. That one has great content, I think, in just the core game. Yes, you do want to expand pretty quickly, and maybe they could have had one more boss, but, like, the scenarios really break things up enough for me where I didn't feel like I'm doing uh, the same thing every time I play it, whereas Planet Apocalypse I kind of do, you know?
0: No, absolutely. And so, all right. So the term is MVP, which is funny because we call ourselves MVP board games. MVP stands for, in this scenario, minimum viable product. MVP for us does not stand for minimum viable product. It's Mike, Vanessa, and Peter. So (laughs) that is like, but MVP is minimum viable product. And I've always been a fan of minimum viable product in the base game. Even though we don't design that way at all, I mean, if you look at our spare parts design, there's nothing minimal about that. We added we added a kitchen sink into the base game because we wanted people to get good value out of their purchase. And Gloomhaven is another one, right? You said Spirit Island has the best value. I think Gloomhaven's fighting for that because there's just so much content in the base game. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you're right. Gloomhaven has the best value. <laughs> forget forget my previous statement. No, no, but I agree with you that Spirit Island, for variety and diversity, has better value, even, I think, than Gloomhaven, even though there's 99 scenarios. But for me, I want to get a taste of the game. The game that does this perfectly was Eldritch Horror. That was a minimum viable product game. But what they did very quickly, within a month, I think, is release a $15 cheap expansion That lets you really increase the replay of what you bought in the base box. Now, the people that are going to hate this are retailers, because now they got to stock two things to meet the value of one product. But if I can buy a game for $15 cheaper to see if I like it, and then if I do, I buy that $15 expansion and add it in. Now, yes, there's going to be more cost because you have more packaging and things like that. But I want the cheapest base game I can get. And where Planet Apocalypse fails for me is because they overproduced everything. The value is not there in the base box. Because in order for this model, MVP model to work, the base box has to be affordable. The reason you are making the other content expansions is because you need the base box to be affordable, and then you can add in small, cheap expansions to make it a more robust system where it fails for me is the difference between a hundred dollar game and a 120 to $140 game is not really that much. Would I pay a hundred dollars for a game or would I pay 140 for the same game with triple the content? I'd much rather for 40 more dollars get triple the content because now you're talking about a different price point. If you're talking about a 30 to $50 price point, that you can reach with an MVP game, I think that's more on par with where it should be. And then for smaller increments, you can upgrade it. So I think the overproduction, and that's why I stressed it differently than you did, is the real problem with Planet Apocalypse. I think if they didn't overproduce it, then they could have got that base cost down and the buy-in cheaper. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, that makes a lot of sense because I'm thinking of... A recent example, uh, Final Girl, which anyone who follows us knows is one of my favorite games of the year and, uh, you know, kickstarted this year. I really didn't mind the business bot model there, where uh, you get, like, basically a core game that just has, like, the key stuff you need. And then you can get between one and four of these, I think they were called, like, killer packs or something like that. Each one with a map, each one with a killer, but you can mix and match them, uh, you know, if you buy more of them. But in that case, they were each, like, I think $20. Now, you're right that many people will complain, and I, I can't say they're wrong, that, you know, could Final Girl have, instead of it costing me 80 or $90 for everything when there are separate boxes that I could mix and match, you know, could you have shoved all that into a single box, saved on all the packaging and redundancy, and made that a $60 product or a $7 product? Probably. But I think I am with you that I like, even though it seems to be, and maybe in some cases it is, even though it seems to be kind of, in a way, gouging on the publisher's side, or at least in the publisher's favor, right? They're taking the same amount of content and separating it in a way that might seem arbitrary to increase their potential for profit. It might seem to be in the publisher's side of things. I think you're right that it is, in many ways, on the purchaser's side— because while well, maybe the overall price for completionism is more, I now have control over what I buy. Yes, that's the key. I think the problem that people complain about is that so many board games are board gamers are completionists. I used to be, and I am not at all anymore. You know, with all the review copies I have to deal with and just how many games I have to play every week... I'm like, I don't have time to be a completionist. Like, what a waste of my... You know, you all do what you want. Like, this is a collection for a lot of people. I don't want to disparage it. But for me personally, completionism is a destructive, like, kind of mindset that I did not want to be a part of. So I, I like it that, you know, I can... You know, to give a few other uh, examples, I like going way back to Summoner Wars. I could buy one box. It was very cheap. And I could try out these two factions if I don't like the game that much, I've spent, what, $20, $25? Yep. If I love the game, i buy the other box. Could they have combined those into one box? Less money, I wouldn't have, like, a redundant second paper map, although I guess you could play four-player with that. Yes, they could have. Uh, you know, Star Realms or one of those kind of things. You get, like, a little box with very, you know, not a ton of cards in deck-building terms, but their expansions are super cheap. So, you know, who cares if I'm going to buy, like, $5 for 10 more cards because I've increased my, you know, if I, I know I love the game already. See, I'm with you. I like the control being in the consumer's hand if they have the willpower and the wherewithal to kind of figure out what they actually want, even if the publisher does make more money in the end because of that business model.
0: And here's just from designer and publisher perspective, I am now encouraged to make every single expansion good, right? Because if something's not good, you won't buy it. If I make five Star Realms expansions and two of them are good, the other three are going to sit on the shelves and no one's going to buy them. They're going to want the two good ones. So even though people think, oh, it's a money-grubbing scheme, I I don't see that at all. The packaging costs, yes, are additional, but I'd rather have the onus be on the designer and the publisher to make good stuff that I want to buy which you don't get on Kickstarter all the time. And we've talked about it a lot. You know, if you're buying an all-in pledge, not everything has to have the same amount of development and the same amount of work because it's like, well, it's just a throw-in. Well, it's not a throw-in if people are now making their livelihood on, is this expansion great? Is Tom Vassell going to look at this expansion and review it well enough for me to sell copies of it? So, yes, I want to make a great product now as a designer that you want to purchase separately. If I don't offer it separately or if it's not available separately, then why would I put the effort in to make it good? So for me, it makes sense to do minimum viable products for expansions for everything else unless the cost is that much more that it matters, which I don't think it is. I would rather be able to pick and choose what I add to my game, and
1: I would rather the designer have to put in enough work for each expansion that it means something. Yeah, I do think that's a nice transition to kind of the designer side of things. And speaking as designers and people who talk to designers, I'm not going to get into like specific games or publishers or people here, but you have different things happening with different games. Sometimes a designer will have made... A thousand cards for the game, but because the publisher wants to have an expansion, because there's too many mechanics to learn at once, and they want to separate some of these out for an expansion so it's not too complex on the front end for lots of good reasons and maybe some not so great reasons, like just to make more money, they'll be like, Hey, we want to work on you know, we want to have these 400, we want to have these 500 in the actual game, all of those will be the expansion. And that might seem terrible, but speaking as designers. We have to develop those things more than where they are when we first like show those kind of things to the publisher. Like, yeah, we might have a thousand cards, but we're going to test the five hundred that'll be in the base game, and they're going to be the best five hundred we can do. We're going to drop the ideas that were kind of ho hum on or that aren't so fun or aren't as clear to you know enact, at least with our process and with a lot of designers we talk to. So I feel like there is you know maybe in some people's minds kind of this idea that designers have everything done and it's just arbitrarily being cut. And that happens sometimes. But I think even if they do have it done to a certain extent, it hasn't been developed yet. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, also where Peter is getting right at it in terms of some of the pitfalls of Kickstarters where everything's, like, theoretically developed, uh, you know, being developed at the same time and delivering at the same time. You know, you might have only worked mainly on that core game and then your Kickstarter blows up and you're like, oh, well, we had three other ideas that are not as developed and haven't been play tested as much. We better throw them together and get it ready. And some companies will do what I would call kind of the right thing and (laughs) make the game take a year and a half and actually develop all those things fully. And some companies won't, maybe because they can't, because that's their financial situation. So, I mean, there's so much stuff going on in terms of like what content makes it into the game. But a lot of times it's like not just a question of what the designers come up with, but what they've had time to develop and (laughs) playtest, assuming it's a company that does a lot of developing and playtesting, which I wish they all would, but, you know, sometimes they don't.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, there's so much on this topic. I think we had a great discussion already. I think this is something we can certainly revisit in the future. But, I mean, bottom line is, you need to put enough in the base game to make it a good value for consumers. But I don't think you want to put too much in That it overwhelms them or makes it so that you don't have any ideas to add in the future for expansions. Save some of the stuff that's not fully developed and fully develop it and make a great expansion for your game. Because every expansion needs to be great in order for it to push the game to the next level. To push it to the evergreen status where I just want to keep buying it because you keep coming up with great content. So if something isn't fully developed enough, don't put it in your base game, figure it out and then add it. That's the bottom line here is add enough to your base game that there's great value, but don't add so much that you're overwhelmed and can't make the game the best it can be.
1: All right. Good final words to end on. Thank you all so much for listening to the one-stop co-op shop podcast. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks after Steve does his thing next week. So it's interesting. We've never in our
0: history done a repeat game except for Pathfinder because we forgot we did it in the first place.
1: Well, I think Steve uh, once or twice, I feel like Steve or somebody did a game we had already covered before, but I don't think we were on the episodes. But yeah, you're talking about Marvel champions again next week, right?
0: Yep. So we're doing Marvel Champions. There's been so many expansions that I think we're going to cover it. And then the following week, what I think we're doing is Too Many Bones. So back to back, we're going to get to revisit some games we've already talked about and talk about how either the expansion changed the game or how different
1: things, so it kind of ties into our discussion today, have made the game either better or worse. Yeah, it's no, a great point. So uh, stay tuned. We'll have some great content for you. Check out the YouTube channel as well. Join us on Slack and Discord. And if you like what you're hearing, support us on Patreon. We uh, love being able to bring more cool stuff for you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another
1: top five list. You start each turn with this team phase where you can uh, basically, you can... But back to uh, Death May Die. That's not what this is called. Back to Planet Apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good final words to end on. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to the One Stop Show. Except for Pathfinder, because we forgot we did it
0: in the first place. I was expecting a laugh. but Well,
1: <laughs> well I think Steve... Uh... Hey, Mike.
0: Yeah. Did you notice all the demons had butt faces?
1: Dude, they totally do. <laughs> My son even watched. Uh, asked that when I was playing it. He's like, why do they all have butts everywhere? And I was like, uh, at least it's not like Kingdom Death Monster, where they have some other things everywhere. So, did you notice the one with the tail? No. So, one
0: of the demons has a tail? It's not a tail. That's its tongue coming out of its butt face. Are you saying... <laughs>
1: certainly a less child-friendly episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No. There's butt faces everywhere. Like, literally every single butt on every single demon in the game has a face on it. And I'm not really sure why. Oh, lovely.